episode 358 of the Cyberlaw Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. And the first thing I'm going to bring to you is an apology to anyone who was listening to episode 357. And just when it got good, the sound went out in minute 28. We fixed that. We fixed that pretty quickly. But the way we fixed it just resulted in a kind of stealth update of the episode. So if you listen to it and put it in your archives or your listen to podcast uh, folder and you want to hear the whole thing, just go back. It's probably all there. Uh, It's just that it was no big deal was made out of the fact that uh, you were getting a corrected version later, later on. But if, and if that still doesn't work, uh, please let us know because we want to figure out what we should be doing if this ever happens again, uh, and we'll point you to a downloadable version of it. Meanwhile, of course, we're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, talking technology, not necessarily practicing it. And the views expressed here do not reflect those of our firms, our clients, our institutional sponsors, our uh, family, friends, pets, really, maybe not even ours, three weeks from today. We're going to be interviewing Mark Montgomery, who's the executive director at the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, about legislative initiatives on cybersecurity in uh, this Congress. Uh, But first, we're going to dig into today's news. we got a great lineup. David Chris founder of Culper Partners is here. Paul Rosenzweig, back from Costa Rica, founder of Red Branch Consulting. We've got him here. Gus Hurwitz from Nebraska, uh, the University of Nebraska Law School and the Governance and Technology Center there is here. He's been away a while. Brian Egan, who's uh, my partner at Steptoe and Johnson and who advises clients on sanctions and export controls and CFIUS is also here. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DH the host and chief provocateur in today's program. Let's start. I think the big story, at least I thought it was, because I did a Twitter thread on it. In fact, I did two, one badly and one with Paul Rosenzweig's tutoring on the FBI's access to computers that had been infected with shells by probably the Chinese exploiters of the Microsoft Exchange server vulnerabilities. As you remember, after they got, they realized it was going to be patched. They just went whole hog, sticking shells everywhere they possibly could. Probably the most irresponsible thing that a major cyber power has been caught doing. Uh, And the Justice Department, I think, made new law, broke new ground in essentially neutralizing large numbers of those shells, using as justification a single search warrant. David, I, I have written on this more than I want, so I'll let you have the first word about what the legal and policy issues are here. Yeah. So, I mean, I think this is this is quite an interesting and innovative thing. It, it, there are some people on the internet who say analogous things have been done in the past, but this is certainly the most high-profile event of its sort, and it looks to have been done under Rule 41b6, which allows a magistrate judge in any district where criminal activity is occurring to issue a warrant to use remote access to either search electronic storage media and also to seize or copy electronically uh, stored information in any district if it's a 1030 computer investigation, which this was. 
And with that authority, the FBI then got this warrant to basically go into computers, some specified computers. It's redacted in the warrant, but it's clear they were specified. And order these web shells to self-destruct, more or less, thus removing the malware from the computers and rendering them hopefully safe for the poor victims. Who probably didn't even know they were victims, right? They did. They, they, it's highly likely that most of these shells were on machines where the folks who owned the machines didn't realize that they'd been infected. That's probably right. It's, it's Since we don't know who the victims were, we don't know what other outreach the FBI might have taken to them or whether it was even practical for them to, to do that kind of outreach. I mean, in some ways, I think that's the chief policy question here. If you make analogies to the sort of traditional physical in real life world, and those analogies can be informative, but also sometimes misleading in this context, it is pretty clear that the FBI gets to search the home or the property of an innocent person, including a victim, if that's where the bad guy left the evidence of a crime, and they can do that. And where something is contraband or malware, I think there's a pretty good argument under traditional authorities to seize it. And here, as I said, the rule specifically authorizes not just search and copying, but also seizure, presumably meaning something other than copying. There are some risks for the Bureau here. They represented in the documents for the court that uh, it wouldn't cause any harm. If it does cause harm, if, if the bad guy booby traps the drugs that he buried in his neighbor's yard and the FBI causes an explosion when they dig it up, they might be on the hook for whatever damage they cause, but it doesn't appear that happened here. So, I mean, I think there is a decent argument and there seems to be a consensus emerging in the internet literati, including one Stuart Baker, that this is legally viable, at least pending discovery of some additional facts. It's an interesting policy question, among other things, why they couldn't or didn't find these victims. They were obviously able to identify the web addresses where, or the URLs where this malware was residing, why they couldn't call the victims or whether they did in fact call them and try to just notify them that there was contraband or bad malware on their systems. We don't know. I also haven't heard anything, but I wonder if it's a revenue model for DOJ to try to eclipse Kaspersky and go into the remote cybersecurity <laughs> malware <laughs> defender business. So they're always looking to make money and maybe that's their thinking. Anyway, it's an interesting use of Rule 41 and search and seizure authorities against uh, computer malware. It is. And Rule 41 was actually quite controversial when it was adopted. And no you mean one. The modification to Rule 41. Yes, yeah, yeah. right. When it was changed to, yeah. to allow one district court to issue a warrant that applied in all over the United States. And I don't remember anyone saying, oh, and by the way, it will allow us to fix your computer too without uh, <laughs> telling you about it. I don't I, think that was an advertised uh, <laughs> use case when they went for this. Yes. Uh, and interestingly, DHS just went through a lengthy and agonizing process of trying to get the authority that you would have thought would have been the right authority, which is to go to ISPs and say, we know there's a machine with this IP address that has a an exploit running on it, and we want to warn the owner, but we don't know who that is. Can you tell us who has the machine at this IP address? And they got that only after lengthy negotiations with civil liberties groups who carefully cabined the the authority. So I think the FBI could have done it that way, but then they would have had to go to DHS and that was unthinkable. Well, and I do think that is probably the chief policy question here. It's in some ways the main thing that's different is that they, they usually would go to a victim and say, hey, 
somebody buried something in your backyard and you want us to come dig it up or do you want to hire somebody to dig it up and render it to us in some way or whatever. So I do think that's the chief policy difference here. And it, it may or may not give rise to a legal challenge at some point downstream. I presume the FBI kept copies of these shells that they uh, ordered to self-destruct because they want to keep their prosecutive options open. So we may have an opportunity there to see how it goes. But I do think that's probably the thing that, that is the question that you want to ask, which is why couldn't they ask DHS for help or get it on their own? They are professional investigators and they probably could have found at least in some cases, people who are associated with these websites. I think they could have the other, the very good argument uh, uh, against doing that is that these web shells are there because of a completely irresponsible and promiscuous use yeah. of shells by the Chinese. When they realized that this hole was going to be patched, they just went out and pwned everybody. And yeah. if they realized that the web shells were also being taken down, they would have yeah. gone to every web shell that hadn't been taken down and inserted <laughs> a, a couple new more. One. <laughs> right. No, that's right. And, and so there could be reasons not to tip off the adversary of this pending action. And it's not totally clear because the attachment lists a handful of specific addresses and then says the remainder of attachment A is redacted in its entirety. So one doesn't know exactly at what scale this this occurred. It makes it look like it's 20 or so or something like that, but it could have been more and we just don't know exactly how far the, the process went and how quickly they did it. But if they acted simultaneously, it wouldn't tip off the adversary. Yeah. So the, the awkward thing for the administration, mildly awkward, is that this utterly irresponsible abuse of access was unveiled by the Chinese just as the administration had been going through a multi-month process of saying, we're going to get tough on those irresponsible cyber exploiters in Russia. I, well, and so it's not mutually exclusive. Stuart. It's not. So you, you kind of wonder when are they going to do to the Chinese what they did to the Russians? But the first question uh, uh, is, what did they do to the Russians? Yeah, so last week on Thursday, the U.S. rolled out a coordinated set of actions against Russia in response to essentially the the hacking and cybersecurity related allegations that the Russians interfered with the U.S. elections last year, and also kind of a, a bill of particulars of other things that have been of concern to the U.S. government. So what, what they did, they, they took one broad action and three relatively narrow actions. The broad action was President Biden issued an executive order under the sanctions law, IEPA, that authorizes the Treasury Department and the State Department to impose sanctions on Russia in the future for many different reasons and against many different parts of the Russian government and the Russian state apparatus. So, for example, because of this executive order, a treasury can now impose sanctions against any Russian government official, any Russian government agency, any Russian actor in the technology sector of Russia. So it's a very broad set of authorities that have been provided to the Treasury Department. Now, what's actually been done with these authorities to date, I would say, is pretty limited. There were three actions taken on Thursday. One was that sanctions were imposed by Treasury against six Russian technology companies under this authority that allows Treasury to impose sanctions against companies operating in the Russian technology sector. So these six companies are now on the OFAC specially designated nationals list. That in and of itself is a very strict prohibition, but it only applies to these six companies in their dealings in the United States. 
The second sanction is that Treasury pro- has prohibited U.S. banks or U.S. financial institutions from certain tre- actions involving Russian sovereign debt, that they basically cannot lend funds to the Russian central authorities, and they cannot be kind of the in, in the primary market for Russian sovereign debt. This is a step up from some earlier sanctions that have been taken under the Trump administration involving sovereign debt, but it's still, there's a ways to go before any dealings in sovereign debt is prohibited. So this was previewed as kind of an iterative step that the U.S. government could take, and more serious steps could come after this one. Because it didn't have much of an impact on the, the, the market price of sovereign debt. No, it did not. And, and in fact, I think it was deliberately designed as such. So at first, it doesn't go into effect until June. So there's a 60-day kind of wind-down mm-hmm. period. And then secondly, Treasury said, we're not stopping U.S. banks from uh, this trading in the secondary markets, nor are we stopping individual investors in the United States from trading in the markets. So I, I think you're right, Stuart, although they were kind of previewing this as something they could turn the screws on further if they decided it was in U.S. policy interests. And this is the first time they've, that they've done that on sovereign debt from countries, isn't it? Other than the countries that are full-scale boycotted. It's, yeah, I mean, if you think about Venezuela, if you think about Cuba, North Korea, Iran, etc., of course, there are, you can't trade in sovereign debt just like you can't trade in anything else if you're a U.S. person involving those governments. So this, I think, is designed and intended to be a more targeted approach, but in an area that the government, the U.S. government has long believed is pretty sensitive to the Russian government. The, the other interesting thing about this was at least this positive technologies, maybe some of the others are similar, but there's some coverage that suggests that uh, positive technologies, first a billion dollar company. Second, it's a little like Kaspersky in the sense that it's a cybersecurity company. And it also has, unlike Kaspersky, as far as we know, an element of being an attack firm. So it, it is kind of the NSO of uh, Moscow. Treasury says a little bit about these things in its rollout. Never says much about the targets against whom it imposes sanctions, but it made a point of saying about Positive and the other firms that these uh, companies are actually supporting Russian government clients, uh, including for Positive, the FSB. It doesn't say anything more, and there's been press about what Positive has been up to and suspicions for some period of time. But the basis of the de- of the sanctions themselves was a pretty high-level response by the U.S. government. The idea of going after companies that assist governments in hacking the private sector is you know, in the air, clearly. Apple's been trying to take advantage of that in a lawsuit that inadvertently, according to, this is Ellen Nakashima at the Washington Post is always productive, but she's been on fire recently. And she's got a story suggesting that the Apple lawsuit designed to attack a company called Corellium for making it easier to do security uh, probing of the iPhone almost exposed the actual supplier of the exploit that allowed the FBI to get into the San Bernardino terrorists' phones. Paul, how did that go? Well, as you pointed out, Stuart, it's kind of complicated. So let's back up a bit, right? Let's back up to San Bernardino a few years ago. There was a a shooter with connections to terrorist activity who had a locked Apple iPhone on which the FBI thought there would be possible evidence relating to his 
criminal actions and to his terrorist network. The iPhone was running a newer version of Apple's iOS that would wipe the contents after 10 improper uh, password efforts. So that made it much less, much less crackable than through the than the normal brute force method that the FBI had been using for years on on Apple iPhones. That led to a big lawsuit in which the FBI wanted Apple to unlock the phone for it. Apple said, no, you're forcing us to write code. We don't want that. And it was going to be the Armageddon of encryption policy. And then it fizzled. It fizzled completely because the FBI found another way into the iPhone. Fast forward to today. For years, everybody thought that the way that the iPhone was cracked was through assistance from a spooky Israeli company. Turns out that was wrong. Turns out it was almost certainly Azimuth, an Australian company. Second, also pretty spooky. Also quite spooky and, and under the radar, but you know, difference between Australia and Israel, Australia's in the five eyes, Israel's not. Israel's yep. always one of our frenemies, our best frenemies. Australia's pretty close to just a friend, 90, 98%, right? Right. Yeah, uh, and then the other piece of it, of course, is that it looks like the story confirmed the suspicion that everybody had from, from five years ago, that the flaw in the Apple encryption was related to some of the instantiation of Mozilla's privacy frameworks in the fi Firefox system that yep. was also the backbone of Tor the onion router network. And that had everybody up in arms back then. Both Firefox and Tor believe that they've solved that problem to the extent that they can assert security in an insecure world. But this confirmation does suggest retrospectively that five years ago, some of our best security engineers who thought they'd built perfectly secure systems like Tor or pretty darn secure systems like Tor were just wrong. So that's item two. And then item three, I guess, is you never know where it's all going to come out because as you said, this revelation came out not through any direct frontal confrontation between the FBI and Apple, but in a lawsuit that Apple brought itself to stop Corellium, which is a security researcher combine from helping people find other flaws in Apple, which is kind of, you may regret that you get what you wish for sort of thing going on. So all in all, a fascinating story. Yeah, it is. I, and I do think that one of the stories here is Apple using its massive resources to see if it can't just uh, punish people who did something legal by tarring them with uh, illegality and suing them endlessly. Apple has lost that Corellium lawsuit up to now. They did try to smear, I think, Azimuth as having provided services to unattractive governments, which the judge seems to have rejected. Uh, and uh, they may even win their Corellium lawsuit in the long run because it's not clear to me that the fact that there was no copyright violation is the same as saying there was no DMCA violation and the DMCA part of that case is still to come. So we may yet see Apple just suing into oblivion people who help the FBI in one way or another. That would be very unfortunate, but- You know, uh, I, I think you're right for their strategy, but I think that strategically it's a mistake because they more, they throw their weight around like this. You know, whatever you think about the big tech lash problems right now, and there's conservative side, liberal side, but Apple is not the 
flavor of the month anymore on, on Capitol Hill. And stuff like this is going to redound strategically to their disbenefit, I predict, going forward. Yeah. I, I think that's quite right. And so you could imagine somebody saying, well, if the DMCA allows this lawsuit, then the DMCA needs to be amended. So that could happen. I think uh, that's true. Well, speaking of why Silicon Valley is not the flavor of the month, there was a long story in The Guardian that I, I have trouble getting deeply upset about it, but it was pretty engaging story about fake engagement and how Facebook polices it and what seems to be a tradition if you leave Facebook and you're not happy you do a final post that says screw you and the horse you rode in on I never want to work with you again and somebody who had been trying to stamp out fake engagement wrote such a post Gus what was her beef yeah, so if it's a day that ends with why, there's content moderation uh, absurdity in the news, and uh, that's what this is really about. Uh, so th this is a fascinating story uh, for a lot of reasons, but the, the story here is about Facebook's efforts to police uh, coordinated inauthentic behavior, whatever that means, and the challenges of figuring out whatever that means. The basic story here is that this uh, former Facebook employee, Sophie Zhang, had uh, been hired to try and identify misinformation coordinated efforts to promote oneself for political reasons, and she found evidence of this in many countries, focusing initially on Honduras and her efforts within Facebook to get them to give a damn. And she kept being told by higher-ups it's not that big an issue in this country. We don't have enough invested there. It will cost too much or take away resources from other priorities. And eventually she got some traction and they started to take some of this stuff down or respond to these uh, coordinated efforts. But guess what? They came back, they popped back up, which kind of makes Facebook's point that it takes a lot of resources to keep monitoring these. And that's why I think this is really a fascinating story, not because of what it reveals necessarily, but because of the dynamics that it's revealing and the challenges that it's revealing. And there's, a, I think, a legitimate and fair frustration that we all can and should have that... It takes these whistleblowers to show us what's going on in the inside. It'd be so much nicer if Facebook and all these other country companies, countries, who knows, uh, <laughs> trying to do this, do content moderation at scale, were to show us what's going on a bit more. Because it, this is hard stuff. I have a lot of trouble thinking that Facebook was a bad actor here. They're trying to manage a massive content moderation system, and they might have made some mistakes here. I don't think that shows they're a bad actor. It shows that this is a really hard problem. So I am, I, I come before you this week as the victim of content moderation. Uh, I, I, I did a post that was uh, basically designed to say, hey, you, you remember that um, uh, Hunter Biden laptop? Well, it turns out it was not fake at all. There were no Russians in it. It's been reviewed in detail by the Daily Mail. They hired a, a, a former FBI forensics guy to, to validate it. They found hundreds of emails, hundreds of texts, all of which appear to validate the, the laptop. I said, the people who won't let us talk about election rigging are the very people who suppressed this story and in the interest of rigging the last election. And LinkedIn said, you can't say that. 
In fact, that violates our professional standards. And if you keep violating our professional standards, we're going to take away your account. I, very slightly chilling uh, message, but I actually, I, nonetheless, I worked through the chill and posted five or six different versions of that sentiment to see what it was that was getting LinkedIn's goat. And it turns out it was the word rigged within five of election. Everything else I said, including the suggestion that the Silicon Valley was protecting itself with this content moderation, they left up. So uh, it led me to think I shouldn't have to put my account at risk to find out what it was that they didn't like about that, that post. So I'm all for transparency. It's not enough, but we really deserve a lot more transparency. Yeah, that, that's a, a great investigative work on your part. And I, I was uh, hoping you were going to say this was Facebook because that could uh, have been a nice throw to me to rant briefly about the Facebook Oversight Board, which announced today that this week that they're delaying their decision with respect to the suspension of Donald Trump's account because they received over 9,000 comments. This is me doing my uh, Austin Powers. 9,000 <laughs> 9, comments. <laughs> uh, 9,000 comments. I, I lived through antitrust cases and uh, net neutrality stuff where you're talking hundreds of thousands or millions of comments. 9,000 cases is nothing. How can yeah. they have to, how can they not anticipate and uh, have systems in place to uh, sort through that? Maybe they just discovered that content moderation decisions are hard. All right. So uh, the intelligence chiefs were up on the hill getting grilled and talking about the annual threat assessment. Uh, Paul, I always have trouble. I never watch those things. I rarely read them because I feel like by the time you get into an unclassified environment where they're uh, working off a script, you're not going to actually learn anything. Uh, uh, am I wrong? I think so. Yeah, for a couple of reasons. Um, the first is that I look at the annual threat assessment as a time series of disclosures about what the intelligence community sees as its priorities. The fact is that in 2005, terrorism was number one, right? In 2015, it was cyber. In 2021, right. It's China. So for me, the most, the singularly most revealing thing is the table of contents, which reflects the rank, rough rank ordering of priorities. And so for me, this threat assessment was really quite interesting because it reflects what we've been seeing over the last few years, notwithstanding the fact that, that the Trump IC skipped a couple in the last couple of years, which is a return to a focus on nation state competition. The lead, the leads here are China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea. Whereas five years ago, 10 years ago, the leads were cyber. And 20 years Terrorism. ago, the lead was yeah. Al-Qaeda. And so yep. that does, I think, reflect a messaging that is a reality, that is something worth learning about. It probably is not terribly surprising to anybody who's listening. But what I, actually what is most surprising to me is, especially for listeners in this group, is how buried cyber was. The cyber set, the cyber standalone section is on page 20. And in the China section, you know, it's not first, second, or third. It's the fourth thing under China that they list for things that China's doing, right? After, after China's military capabilities, WMD, space competition, regional global activities, all those come first, which is really quite fascinating to me as well, especially because I tend to, to actually think that undervalues the cyber threat some, but then I, that's maybe that's because 
focused on that in my professional career. Can I just weigh in? I at this, David. I think Paul, you know, sort of has it right. I think for people who don't know a lot and who don't spend a lot of time evaluating national security threats, watching the evolution from the focus on terrorism and kinetic threats to the two plus three framework and the threat vectors that represents, including but certainly not limited to cyber, is very informative. On the other hand, for people like Paul and you, Stuart who really do know a lot about this space, it's actually interesting to see and to assess the intelligence community's own public articulation of what matters and how things are prioritized and then potentially to critique that if you think they're off base. So whether you're really sophisticated and, and wondering whether the IC gets the joke or whether you're not sophisticated as much and don't invest as much time and want to know sort of what the joke is, I think this thing and the uh, tracking of it over time and space can be quite informative and interesting. I found it interesting. Yeah, anyway. so, so I'll add to that briefly, Stuart. I mean, at the hearing, right, FBI Director Ray said he had more than 2,000 open cases relating to China. That, I don't think, was a publicly disclosed number before. And that seems to me like a pretty substantial effort, level of effort, right? And so that kind of collateral disclosure seems reflective as well of the hearing right and that and that and and particularly the their assessment of chinese chinese basically economic espionage and assault and so that too seemed valuable and and then i guess the last thing i got from this is at the hearing at least they were all pointedly asked if they needed more authority and to a person, every one of them said that they had enough legal authority. So that, I mean, that I, whether that's true or not, it certainly reflects the Biden administration's unwillingness to go forward in law in this area, which is also an interesting data. Yeah, there's a, maybe there's an Ellen Nakashima story there, whether that was a trial balloon floated by people who got it in the air under Trump and then had to pull it back under Biden, or whether it was just kind of a, a, a clumsy discussion of tools that they would like to have or a justification of failures that they suffered rather than an effort to get new authorities. My guess is it's a mix of both. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I think there's public evidence for the continuity thesis because in the very last day, I think, or at least the last few days of the Trump administration, there was issued an executive order on essentially know your customer obligations for right. infrastructure as a service providers. And in prior testimony, public testimony before the Armed Services Committees, General Nakasone of NSA was pretty clear in saying he did not seek new sort of domestic surveillance authorities to deal with the evident problem of bad guys using U.S. infrastructure to attack or exfiltrate information from the defense industrial base or other potential victims in the United States. And I think he's, I think, probably quite wise, regardless of administration, to not seek 12333 style discovery abilities inside domestic infrastructure. That's going to be tough politically. It would probably be tough constitutionally. And so they seem to be going towards a, a different model, sort of perhaps along the lines you talked about with DHS and knowing who is the owner or controller of websites that either have malware or even have appropriate software, but that's being misused by bad actors. That looks like the solution of choice, meaning more reporting, more insight, more public-private partnerships 
that sort of thing, as opposed to raw surveillance authorities. And, and it's good to get confirmation of, of that, or good or bad, but at least it's informative to get confirmation of that, depending on your perspective. Yeah, and it might work. I, I think we've talked about KYC as an alternative to, yeah. uh, to surveillance, and it might well work. That's basically appointing Amazon as the surveillance authority, but we'll keep, we'll say that very quietly. All right, uh, last thing on China, I think uh, is a couple of House Republicans who sent a letter to DOD and DHS saying, so you've shot at Huawei and wounded them at least, but there's another Chinese smartphone manufacturer named Xiaomi that has picked up a lot of their market share and capabilities, uh, and isn't it time to go after them? David, do you think that's the same case? Is this Are, are we going to see Xiaomi taking its turn inside? So yes, Stuart, I, I think this goes back to around 2012, as I recall, when Mike Rogers and Dutch Ruppersberger, then of Hipsy on a bipartisan basis, put out a report and warned everybody about Huawei and ZTE and tried to spur the executive branch to more aggressive action. This seems like it's in the same tradition. There's a long tail, as I understand it, of Chinese tech companies, cell phone providers, whether handset or network-based, who are trying to compete with one another and gain market share in China, but also then, of course, have aspirations to export to Western Europe, United States, and worldwide. And so I see this letter to Commerce and DHS as in the tradition of Congress warning about Chinese vendors and potentially using investigative or other authorities to expose potential malfeasance and, again, to sort of spur the executive branch towards a more aggressive posture where that's what Congress wants. It's sort of interesting, I guess, that you have two ranking members writing here and no chairs. That's more interesting because, as I said, the 2012 effort was very much bipartisan. So I, I think that there's a difference. I'm not going to defend Xiaomi, but it's a phone company by and large. Huawei was a phone company that had a massive infrastructure role as well. Uh, I don't think Xiaomi makes the kind of equipment that would handle 5G. Yeah. And so that makes it different. It's still, if you're worried about that kind of thing, it's a risk to the people who buy those phones, but it's not a risk to the entire infrastructure. I, I One of the things I'd like to see Congress and the administration do is much more systematically look at some of the tech that's and and there is some effort to do this as part of the supply chain initiative i don't want to say they're not doing it but i think uh, rather than just saying oh look i found another phone with a, a badge on it that's in chinese we'd be better off kind of saying where are the biggest where risks? are the risks yeah yeah and I, and I must say i don't know i don't know any of the facts about xiaomi so i wouldn't want to assess one way or the other what the relative risks are but i certainly agree with you that a systematic soup to nuts a net assessment of risks across networks, handsets, and other undersea cables or whatever it may be is, I think, both in order and I think underway and for good reason. Okay. Two things that could be long, but I'll try to make them quick. Uh, uh, the uh, financial industry is going to be regulated on breach notification in a way that is dramatically different from the current situation. And the rule that would do it has just closed its comment period. 
There were maybe 25 comments. They were they all seemed to be conceding that something like this was going to happen, but would like to tweak it. It requires notification by financial institutions to their regulators within 36 hours of finding a breach. The breach has nothing to do with the, whether individual personal personal data is disclosed. It's a question of did they get in or not. These are things that probably do make sense, although 36 hours, you're not going to get anything definitive at that point. And every one of those regulators is going to have to hire 15 or 20 people just to, to, to make sense of the notifications they get. But they should do that. And whether it's 48 or 36 or 72, the faster some kind of notification goes in, the more likely you are to stop a campaign of attacks. So we'll see this come out six, eight, 10 months from today as they analyze the comments. But I think we're going to see this just as we're going to see an executive order that requires the same kind of fast breach notification without regard to personal data, I believe, for government contractors. So we're seeing a creeping standard of notification without regard to personal data, which is probably overdue in areas where there's particularly grave concerns about the security of the infrastructure. So that's, if you're in this field, you've, you need to be watching that pretty closely. And antitrust, there, there's a great missed opportunity here to, to do a bipartisan bill on antitrust in Silicon Valley, or at least to do a bipartisan report. The House has released its totally partisan report. I, a, and I guess the question is, Gus, what is what do we think it means? Are the recommendations in there as partisan as the vote for the report? Or do you think there's still some possibility that an antitrust reform bill for Silicon Valley will make it through this Congress? Headline continues to be, everyone wants to do something about antitrust, so nothing will happen. The the report, the, the report has a lot of good analysis in it. The conclusions remain completely untethered from that analysis and completely partisan. Even Zolofgren, who voted out the report, is expected to issue uh, her own statement of concerns criticizing it. House ENC Republicans uh, came out with a staff memo this past week with kind of their own version of the report, which is completely divergent from it and also breaks from a mainstream Republican views on antitrust. Josh Hawley has introduced uh, now two pieces of uh, related legislation, which obviously are going nowhere. Really, the, the story here is everyone is mad about antitrust because it's really hard to use antitrust law to do anything. And the reason for that is 30 years or so ago, folks were really concerned antitrust law was being used to achieve political goals. So there was a shift towards economic analysis to depoliticize antitrust law. And guess what everyone is trying to do now? They're repoliticize re it. <laughs> so obviously it's not going anywhere. There, there are a lot of real concerns here. I, I do think that there's possibility that we'll have some narrow legislation to address specific antitrust related issues probably no sweeping reform. We are seeing some bipartisan support. Buck, for instance, is on board with a piece of journalism and media-focused reform legislation that's Democrat-driven. So I, I think that there could be some narrow things, but we're, we're not going to see uh, widespread wholesale antitrust reform. 
All right. Well, uh, no surprise, I guess, that things aren't going to happen on the Hill. It's very hard to pass legislation, uh, but there it is. So, okay, that's the news roundup. Uh, thanks to Gus and David and Paul and Brian. Now I would like to turn for the interview to John Costello and Mark Montgomery, both of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, which is must hold the uh, longevity award for commissions at this point. The report was done before COVID, if you can believe it. And, and yet here they are. They're still having a major impact on debates. Partly it's because they didn't just make recommendations. They said, okay, and we're going to stick around and we're going to push for the recommendations. We've got members of Congress on the commission who are going to make it their goal to pass legislation implementing our recommendations. And we're going to keep writing reports talking about various parts of uh, the cyberspace, uh, cybersecurity problem. And let let me just ask, I'll start with Mark. Mark, do you have any plans at the Cyberspace Solarium Commission to uh, eventually stop work? Sure. Thanks. Well, I think, I mean, the good news here is is it seems like we've been around a long time, but the truth is we're actually still a fairly short commission by DC standards, only because when Senator McCain set it up, he said, you have one year soup to nuts from when you name commissioners to when you have a report out. And we did it in about 11 months. Then, and we did, it was the last event in D kind of in the congressional docket before COVID on March 11th, we rolled our report out to 300 people who were not properly spaced and, and from what I can tell, we did act, we fortunately did not turn into a super spreader event and we got the report out. And you're absolutely right. We spent the next six months working the legislative cycle. Now, that was the intention. One of the things was that Senator King and, and Representative Gallagher felt that because of COVID, we probably didn't get as much in as we could have. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but we had that belief at the beginning. So he asked for a one a one year extension to work a second legislative cycle. Now, as in the very end game of the National Defense Authorization Act, we did get quite a few provisions and we had 25 recommendations turned into 27 provisions in the NDAA and, and I think were and will be impactful. I know, there's no doubt. You, you guys, I mean, the, the recommendations you made were on the ambitious side of doable and you got a, a fair number of them. You got the... Yeah. And, and particularly, we got the Department of Defense ones. So we were 12 for 12 on our DOD of our... 52 legislative recommendations, 12 were DOD and all 12 were through on the other 40, a lower percentage. So the, but when we're extended, it clearly says, this is the end, my friend. So December 31st of, of this year will be the end of the commission. It won't be the end of Senator King and Representative Langevin utilizing the staff of the commission to get things done, but it will be the end of a paid commission. <laughs> and I'll eventually have to figure out what the what that means. And Senator King will help me figure it out, I'm sure. But the official commission will end this year. So it's second legislative cycle. And, and it's interesting. It is harder. We still have a series of more impactful items left, particularly outside of the Department of Defense, and even outside the Department of Homeland Security, and some within the Department of Homeland Security, there are a few low-hanging fruit. There were things that, as we were pushing things through, that were low-hanging fruit outside of DOD that just didn't get done. I'll give you an example. Funding critical technology security centers at, at defense la- at energy labs and, and FFRDCs that would study, say, I- ICS or IoT technologies, that would study open source, things like that. We have one like that I think is pretty low-hanging fruit. We have another one on the federal, coming up, federal government coming up with a strategy for how they'll properly implement security with DNSSEC and, and BGP. 
They took a portion of it last year, the DMARC portion. We want to get the rest. So a few low-hanging fruit. But I think today we really want to talk about the more significant ones that, that we have out there. And I'll tell you, there's very little Department of Defense recommendations this year. I, I talked with the Senate Armed Services Committee on Friday, and really there's two or three recommendations that are a plurality or majority DOD. All the rest of our work is going to be Homeland Security, Commerce, uh, Justice. So let me ask, I, I, in the past, cybersecurity stuff, even cybersecurity stuff that re- related to DHS, has ended up in the NDAA, even though it didn't directly go after DOD's authorities. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's going to happen again, or are people going to look at this and say, I heard Mark Montgomery on the CyberLaw podcast admit there's nothing about defense in this? Yeah. Well, I mean, the good news is I'm pretty sure you could push a, a rainbow unicorn through the through the NDAA if there was a member that was really motivated about it. So my take is we'll probably use the NDAA again. Half of our provisions, more than half our provisions last year, were non-DOD in nature and in the NDAA. And we all know that of the, you know, in fact, of the 70 plus cyber initiatives in the NDAA, just over half were DOD majority. I mean, that's just a fact of life. So will the NDAA be used again? Undoubtedly. But this year, as opposed to last year, there may be more legislation, receptive legislation that passes through the Congress. Yeah, because there are a lot of issues that are at least not totally partisanized, and this is one. And I think that if the China bill remains a uh, nonpartisan effort in terms of, and, and, let me say that, if the China bill remains something that's a non-reconciliation effort, I, I could see uh, a number of, of our recommendations or mutations of our recommendations, which we're absolutely happy with. Very few of our recommendations make it through the congressional review process unscathed, and 95% of the changes are be- make it better. Yeah, they knew something we didn't know. They had a, a, a some sort of extra thing, a piece of juice they wanted in the provision, and, and it's always made it better. So I expect we'll see some, maybe in that in a China bill, and maybe another bill. There might even be standalone bills to go through. I, I really believe the Cyber Diplomacy Act is going to pass standalone in the House this week. And this, uh, this and, is the one that kind of restores the old ambassador for cyber. Yeah. Is that right? And improves it in the sense it makes it a bureau. And and lists its responsibilities to really bring together the cyber role. I mean, the State Department is a uniquely stovepiped organization among its many bureaus and offices. And I I think the opportunity to put this up at the P level under the political affairs or under the secretary or deputy secretary with a, a large remit to handle cyber issues is going to make it even better than it was under Chris Painter, which I think it, it was an effective organization eight years ago or six, uh-huh. six years ago. And, and I think it could be again, and I think it could be even better. And it needs to be. We are doing extremely poorly overseas in international fora, whether it's the, the ones where the U.S. government is the lead participant, like the International Telecommunications Unions, or the ones where it's attended by our businesses and our government, like the like the um, 3GPP one for that, that controls 5G standards. The United States and Western values are not being reflected in those organizations. And China and to a lesser degree, Russia are driving an agenda that's towards non-transparent, non-rules-based, non-privacy, non-personal rights recognized standards that A, make it hard for U.S. companies to compete, but B, create very unhealthy conditions in countries that, that install this equipment. I find that completely plausible. I have been through standards processes, sat in them as a participant. Uh, there is nothing more boring. They always have them in nice cities because you just cannot 
spend more than eight hours thinking about this without getting out and doing something. And the only people who go to meeting after meeting, which is the only way you have an impact, are people who have real skin in the game, real money on the line. I worry that you can send a junior foreign service officer to those things, and they're just going to look around blank at most of the activity. So I think the State Department's job will be to organize the U.S. government, which is to say get state with NIST, National Institute of Standards and Technology, the Department of Commerce, and with the relevant federal agency that would be involved in this issue, along with the U.S. businesses. The difference between us and the Chinese isn't just that we show up with maybe the wrong person, as you uh, mentioned, or not enough government people, but we definitely don't show up as an integrated government business belief. And look, we in business and government don't need to believe 100% of each other's business. We need to agree on 80 or 85% and then work those hard because we're competing with a Chinese board where the government and the state-owned enterprises have a 100% opinion. They're actually, they're rewarded for the number of provisions that they can insert into this language, not just because it improves the Chinese position, but it clogs the workup against any other legitimate Mm -hmm. Western proposals. And literally they get between 50 and $150,000 per provision where they basically tie up the organization. So I'm not saying we're going to pay people to tie up the organizations, but we're going to integrate ourselves. State Department's job, lead job is to lead the integration, but we really need to give funding to NIST as well to participate in a fulsome way. Those are the kind of people who enjoy these boring meetings. And and so they're the ones we want there along with our uh, business counterparts. Okay. So that's the State Department. What Mm -hmm. other Items, do you think you have a good shot at getting this uh, this year that are going to affect cybersecurity? Well, good shot's hard to say, but what I'll tell you, the important ones that I think we're putting forward, and then we can go through them with John and I, you can break it down and go through them individually. But I'll say broadly, there's four other things that I, I really hope we're able to push through this year. First is system is systemically important, critical in infrastructure, which is the proposal that we had last year, but was really too complex to get done. The idea that the Secretary of Homeland Security would designate companies that play a vital function in the U.S. They would, they would have special responsibilities, but also some special protections. Yeah. So uh, benefits and burdens. Exactly. Yeah. And the, the idea of the bill is to identify, protect, and defend what John Costello likes to call the most critical of the critical companies that, that if targeted and exploited by an adversary like China, could produce catastrophic consequences in the U.S. economy. And so we try to lay out benefits and burdens. This is hard because yeah. there are when we say cybersecurity is a nonpartisan issue, it, it is. But there are elements of cybersecurity when you start to get into it, particularly about liability protection for companies. Yeah. Or companies forking over a lot of data to the government where they're not 100% sure where it's going to land that, that break through the partisan divide and or nonpartisan divide in this case and make it so. So that's a political weighing. You have to figure out what do I have to offer to make this attractive enough that I can actually get through Congress. And yeah. so you made a whack at it. Mm-hmm. And I thought the idea of doing it was better than the particular doffs you were suggesting. Do you think that the legislation that comes through is going to have a different set of benefits and burdens? Yeah. So we've improved it. We took a year off from, we definitely tried it last year and it was one of the first things. The first thing shot down was clearly reorganize Congress into a single cyber committee. I'm not kidding you when I say the first comment back when that was filed on the floor was in 35 minutes from the rules committee saying, yeah, basically you're out of order. I I bet it was followed uh, uh, five minutes later by the White House saying, yeah, we're not going to get a uh, confirmed position in the White House in cybersecurity. (laughs) But Congress won. Congress can be very efficient when protecting turf. So, but I get that. This one didn't survive much longer, but I think we've come up with a a better set of of benefits and and, and burdens on this. And, And so 
but first I'd say the it will be it takes consensus and it takes accepting things that you this is very hard in legislation. This cannot be a, an all or nothing game. There is no all or nothing bill on sick because when there's benefits and burdens and all you want is the benefit or all you want is the burden, you can't get there. So it will it will take it, it will take compromise. Now, now I will tell you, I've seen compromise before on this kind of bill. We had some compromise last year on a few bills, certainly on NCD, National Cyber Director. We had compromise. So I think it's possible to get there, but I do have, we do have to get it. To me, this is most likely a National Defense Authorization Act, an NDAA floor amendment, and we have to get it in conference. Once it's in conference, then you can have a reasonable discussion to get towards a consensus. That's where people start to say, well, this actually doesn't quite make sense. And you can have a discussion around the table and come up with something that is still a compromise, but a more sensible one. Yes. And so I I think I would go through the benefits and burdens on this to just say that the the burdens are that these, and I use the awful acronym that is Costello's responsible for called SICI, but SICI designated entities would be required to comply with cybersecurity performance standards based on identified risks in their business operations. Companies would certify on a yearly basis and be subject to assessment by DHS. There's a way to exempt sectors if there's an existing regulatory regime. And we're not trying to so, introduce so, redundancy. So let me, I'll be stop you there because it, yeah. most of the sectors that are SICKIES uh, are regulated industries already, maybe not perfectly regulated. Yeah. Maybe federal regulation doesn't have authority. The big exception to that are the folks who have successfully resisted regulation for 30 years, but who are about to get their time in the barrel, which is Silicon Valley. Those guys are critical infrastructure. How do you handle that? Yeah, I mean, so that's a good, that's a good question. I mean, so I'd say two things. Number one, to your first point, we put there plenty of latitude for the secretary to exempt sectors that are already regulated or SICI entities that are in sectors that are already regulated if that sector can put forward uh, standards of their own that are at the level the secretary requires under the SICI program. And a lot of that's to reduce redundancy. The second thing is, this would turn some portion of DHS, we'd prefer it not be CISA, to be a regulator over the IT industry for at least the entities that are designated SICKI under the within the IT within the IT industry. It's going to be- happen. I, the, why do you say not CISA? Because they're committed to a sort of give them tea and cookies and convene model of getting cooperation. So, yeah, I mean, so CISA's uh, entire business model, so to speak, uh, relies on the voluntary participation of industries. And there's been a few things that have really, through barriers that they've removed, that have allowed them to have that healthy relationship. One is, is they're not a part of the intelligence community. So any companies that's worried about the perceptions of that can sort of throw that out the window. Second of all, they're not a regulator. In general terms, they do regulate a small portion of the chemical facilities industry, but they're not a regulator. So that opens up, that allows for, I think, more candid conversations with industry. We wouldn't really want to sort of abrogate that. We wouldn't want to peel that back. So I think any any move towards SICI, you're going to have to have a strict firewall between the work that CISA does as a sort of voluntary with industry. I, 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 I see I see that. And I completely agree with you. I've worked with the guys at CISA years ago and still know them. And it's not in their DNA to get tough with industry and they don't they look for getting good performance out of the top 80 percent of industry as opposed to punishing the bottom 20 percent of industry and somebody's going to have to start punishing the bottom 20 percent too but boy another 
agency, if they aren't closely coordinated with the CISA, they're not going to have the technological know-how to, to do good regulation. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good point. So the way I think we've sort of thought about this is, I don't know if it would be a completely, I don't think it would be outside of the DHS ecosystem. But I, I think, yeah, you're going to you're gonna have to create a new who's who in the zoo, or you're going to have to create some type of a special office in CISA that is just entirely firewalled. But then, of course, that requires that industry knows that and trusts that uh, that divide. But yeah, I mean, one, one thing that I think certainly is a, lim- a limitation, but one that can be overcome is making sure from a compliance and enforcement perspective, you have um, sufficiently trained and technically qualified personnel. So, so you yeah, should talk that's... to you. If you haven't talked to him yet, you probably can't yet, but soon. Rob Silvers is going to be the head of policy for DHS, unless something very surprising happens in confirmation. He used to be the assistant secretary for policy responsible for cyber, and he was a candidate for a lot of the cyber jobs. He would understand what you're saying. He understands regulation. I've worked with him in the private sector. He's done a lot of regulatory work. And uh, if you want an aligned organization that isn't quite CISA, you could stick it in policy. Yeah. So one, it's funny you should mention that. One of the things that we've considered, not saying this is in the bill or just something that's sort yep. of you know been, been raised to our attention, is a potential assistant secretary for regulatory affairs or, or something along those lines. But I think in the end game, I think we find that it's probably best to leave how exactly those authorities are going to be delegated and to whom to the to the secretary who's who may be best placed. Oh, clearly, the right answer. I I agree with you because secretaries they're gonna they're gonna listen to the people they want to listen to anyway. You might as well let them decide who they're gonna listen to on the org chart too. Right? All sensible. How about natural national breach notification? You had a compromise there. I wasn't sure it was going to work. Since you've done this, multiple regulatory agencies, draft executive orders have moved from personally identifiable information, breach notification, to just saying, if you're breached, you tell us, because we need to know. We don't care whether it's personally identifiable information or not. It could be worse if they got into your code base than if they got into uh, social security numbers. So we want to hear about any breach that could have a systemic effect. That wasn't in your original proposal, but I suspect it's got to be kicking around as you think about how to deal with this in the future. Yeah. So I'll go, I guess I'll go first on that and say, you're exactly right that we had to update our our thinking on this because we had two separate bills, one that looked at national data breach notification and one that looked at incident reporting. So I first want to point out that in the SICI bill we were discussing, one of the one of the burdens on industry would have been incident reporting. So at the high end, those kind of critical functions that are necessary for our national economic security, there is a high level of, of incident reporting right. required. So that's one of the burdens. But this is this law, the d- data breach notification law that we have, our national breach notification law that we have out now, does deal specifically first with per- p- exposure of PII. And so it, it outlines a threshold for what a breach should be. You know, requires the notification, the transmission of the relevant forensic data to law enforcement sets the standards and timelines for notifying victims, determines uh, the standard for whether they should receive some kind of credit monitoring or other protection. And it deconflicts with existing federal regulations for private sector, non-federal entities. And then probably most sensitive, it preempts the 54 existing state, district, territorial data breach laws. That's the data. Sort of, sort of, right? It's it's more of a, it it sets a floor. They can't go below the floor. But I thought there was still some role for the states. States, we don't take away the state attorney general's permissions. And if something is confined to a singular state, Mm -hmm. that attorney general, there's going to be less and less of that. 
over time. But the important part was the part that, that John, that you alluded to, and that John pulled from another bill, and it was exactly to get at this, that there's got to be more than this. So there's an additional provision that would require notification of federal authorities in instances where where over 5,000 individual PIIs were, were put in. So that's still on the PII. But then if there's been a compromise of a federal database, any federal employees, any incidents of ransomware, any penetration or compromise of OT systems or software operational technology systems or software build and development systems. Okay, pretty get comprehensive free. list. Yeah, uh, yeah, this will be unpopular in a lot of quarters. But again, this is one of those issues where you have to decide you know, what degree of consensus can you get? Now, the problem we have here is this will be hard to get in the NDAA. There are too many committees that Homeland Security, Commerce in both chambers, and to a lesser degree, I think, and probably just in the Senate, the Intelligence Committee, mostly because Senator Warner has such an abiding passion for this kind of issue, and he's chairman. Um, that, that sometimes causes a committee to have jurisdiction that you wouldn't normally associate with it. But in the Senate, anyway. <laughs> the Senate passion of the chairman can equal jurisdiction with, with enough friends. That makes it hard. And that makes armed services like, hey, please, don't bring that to us to be the, adjud- the great adjudicator. But, you know, last year, kind of the economy, 12 committees in the Senate, 13 committees in the House. That's a total uh, of 50 ranking and chairman that had to clear every change. Wow. And just to punish us for being who we were, there were literally nine changes. So we had to go through, the numbers are a little weird, but we had to go about 300 plus clearances over about a four-day period or maybe six-day period. <laughs> it was one of the most painful things I've, I've done in a while. And, and I'm a nuclear engineer. So I would just say it was it's hard and data breach will be hard. So you, we really need to get consensus with Homeland Security, Republicans and Democrats, Commerce, Republicans and Democrats and the, the Senate uh, and the Intelligence Committee, at least in the Senate, before we kind of move forward in one of the chambers. So we'll see what happens. The House has run a little differently. So there's a chance it could get done in the House, get into the bill, into the NDAA, and then have a discussion. Yeah, I get the comments. No guarantees. Yeah. So last big issue that I at least would like to cover is the Supply Chain Intelligence Center. I, I, I'm convinced that we need to pull that intelligence together and it needs a tough, demanding customer, which it doesn't currently have, and a mechanism for sharing that information and probably protecting the process from all the litigation that the people who come out on the wrong end of those analyses are going to try to file. There's a lot that has to be done there. It's it's not something the intelligence community likes to deal with because it's a lot of U.S. persons all over this data. And so I've always thought that if you're going to have something like that, it probably needs to be a DHS-led effort using their authorities. How far down that road do you think you're going to go this year? Well, I'll start and then I'll ask John to finish it. And I, and I want to give uh, uh, credit to Rob Morgus from our team, who's really been leading this effort, did the whole supply, supply chain white paper. And that was a great paper. Uh, it was. And the recommendations coming out of it are really becoming rich because we then write them up as legislative proposals, pass them around professional legislative councils and general councils correct us. And and we've ended up some, with some quality product. But the National Supply Chain Intelligence Center, the provision directs the president to construct and designate the center to integrate supply chain intel efforts from across the federal government with those of, of public and private partners. So you're right, where the location is going to be important here. And it should serve as the kind of the central and shared knowledge resource for threats to the supply chain, activities we're seeing, and, and general supply chain integrity. So, John, I'll pass it to you about location and any other issues you saw. 
Yeah, so the supply chain intelligence, I feel like we, we use the term pretty broad to describe a variety of things we're talking about. And let me get back down to sort of basics here. One is threats to the supply chain, and that could be a threat to availability and to the integrity. So either someone's threatening to cut it off or uh, someone's actually threatening the, uh, the provision of a product or a service or integrity of that product or service. Other things are a little bit more complicated, such as corporate due diligence. What company is really what company? Yeah, um, and, is and, and, and what do they owe to which governments? No, that's absolutely right. Even more is just supply chain awareness, which is what is the dependency of services and products within the United States and across and across across borders the U.S. is dependent on and who is dependent on them. I think on balance, I think you're right. I think it's hard in any of those outside of corporate due diligence, which I mean, you can buy off the shelf from the private sector in mass through a variety of services. I don't see this working unless you have some type of voluntary participation. You, you're going to want to get some of the best information you get on a supply chain threat is from companies. The other thing is from the awareness standpoint, if you're looking at availability, where's the greatest risk on, on specific lines of supply that can be constrained in a ways that will affect the U.S.? You have to talk to U.S. businesses. And the issue with that is is supply chain. Who a company procures procures their services from is a trade they, secret. They do not want to talk about it. No, that's quite right. They, they have to be persuaded. They'll, they'll, companies will talk about very sensitive confidential information if after five years there haven't been any leaks and they have, there's something in it for them. But building that confidence is going to take some doing. Yeah, and there's only one. I mean, CISA has done this before to varying degrees of success in different sectors on cyber. I think looking towards CISA as a way, at least either the, potentially the front door, if not the whole entire center itself, for this efforts is good. The alternative model, the alternate model, I should say, instead of getting this information voluntarily, is compelling it. And the only way I think the government can do that at scale is through a Defense Production Act industry survey, which I don't think that we're willing to foot the bill, nor do I think that would go down particularly well with U.S. industry. So given that, I, I see CIS is going to have to play some role, if not the central role, in, the, in this intelligence center. But, you know, when you're looking at corporate due diligence and you're looking at some of that information, when you're looking at sort of a scaled service across the government, you have to look to, I think, ODNI or Department of Treasury for that. A Treasury, I think, gets a lot of this and has a huge stake in this from running the CFIUS process and their, the new law on, on transparency with shell companies as well. But I, I want to go back to your original point, the strong customer. The strongest customers for this information, in my mind, should be Treasury and Department of Commerce. They are the two entities in the U.S. government who have the strongest authorities to do anything with this information in a way that is meaningful and has a dramatic impact in both the short and long term. So I think emphasizing the building center is good, but also emphasizing the weight and power of Treasury and commerce as economic, but also national security entities, I think is going to be important. Yeah, maybe so. I like to think that the people who are actually buying stuff, the people who have the supply chain ought to be customers for problems in their uh, supply chain that they weren't aware of that our authorities will allow us to identify. But let me, let me bring this to a conclusion by asking you, What's the one thing that we haven't talked about yet that we really have to talk about? You know, from my perspective, it's the how do we successfully implement the, the 2020 national defense, uh, 2021 national defense authorization things. In other words, we did these 27 provisions, including national cyber director. And so I think that one, I'm going to stay away from the DOD for now. Let DOD yeah. heal itself. It's got money, which is the number one thing you need. And it's got a professional cadre of legislative provision and, the, and actors. 
the other agencies tend to struggle. So we gave CISA the, and this to me is the most important thing, we gave them the uh, direction to do, and, and when I say we, it was our provision, but done by the Congress, signed by, veto overridden by the Congress. Normally say signed by the president, we have to skip that this year. So, but the direction to do a force structure assessment, determine what's the right number of people, what's the right type of people, what do they have, yeah. what's the gap, how many, what kind of resources they need to close that and to train people to close it. And then what's the technology they need and what's the infrastructure they need? Our assessment of the first three years of CISA under Chris Krebs' leadership was that he did a fantastic job taking the most important mission, which is the socializing of the existence yeah. of CISA into the private sector. And it, it could not have been done better than right. Chris did it. And then but, he, but, but he was more of a one-man show than we realized. Yeah. And Jen Easterly needs to turn yeah. it into a full organization. Yeah. Exactly. So, and he also did elections. The, the team did election security well with a, ve- a large number of other federal agencies yep. who tend to stay below the radar line. Now, Jen Easley is the perfect appointee. I mean, I can't tell you the lineup they got, starting with Ann Newberger and at, at the and one of your commissioners, uh, getting Rob Silver's over to Undersecretary for Policy, where we think DHS is going to have a much bigger role because they also have continuity of the economy planning, yep. a bunch of other serious things. But then Jen Eastley with Eric Goldstein is a great team. And I think Jen has this skill. She helped build Cybercom. She can look down and in to get the national risk management functions, to get whatever we're going to end up calling NKIC, but the information sharing, the joint collaborative environment comes into, to get the planning going that the National Cyber Director needs. So that Joint Cyber Planning Office is enabled. To get there, they run education through an organization called CTAP, the way we educate like high school kids on cyber hygiene and a bunch of other programs. They run just a multitude of programs that we don't deal with every day. They run a number of our of our uh, sector coordination councils as the, as the government, either primary or secondary representative. So they have this am- amazing depth of work that has to be done. I'll be surprised if they don't need a doubling of their workforce. Yeah, I, I, I think that's con- quite conceivable. I do wonder, uh, uh, the, the one area where you want to implement where I'm not so sure about is a, a really large staff for the NCD. Big staffed organizations inside the White House, to my mind, are subject to either they, they lose touch with the White House or they end up with the usual White House disease, which is that you're working on whatever the president cares about today. And you can't look at tomorrow because the president's going to think about something else tomorrow. And if you're thinking about the wrong thing, you're just not in the meetings and you don't matter. So I worry whether we really should be creating a large bureaucracy, and by large, I mean 20 people, under the NCD. So so I'm very, I'm pleased to hear that because I'm big. We're being criticized for having too many people and having too few people. So I believe in my Goldilocks theory of the world, we've probably landed in the right spot. But what I'll tell you is John and I have gone through every billet personally. John and I created a 25-person, 50-person, and 75-person down to the this sheer he has this skill set, this seniority, this pay, private sector detailee. We've handed it over to, to Chris Inglis. We handed it over to the Biden transition team. We'd have handed over to the Trump transition team if there had been one. We were our goal is to is to let them succeed. I think it's the right number. You know, I watched Charlene Barshevsky run USTR exceptionally efficiently in the uh, Clinton administration with about 175 people, and and that was a it's a different mission set. I'm pretty comfortable with where we with, with about 175. I think with 75, I mean the one mistake I we made John and I when we put this together is we didn't label one of the deputies a principal deputy. We do need to align to the White House system. Mm-hmm. 
There's minor things like that. I'm comfortable. You're absolutely right. You have to worry about just being slave to the latest trend in the White House, understood. And you have to be worried about being out in Crystal, out in 2900 Crystal Drive in Arlington, where, where our commission is. Right. But what I'll say is they'll end up somewhere in one of the executive office buildings, which is absolutely appropriate, with Chris and his senior leadership team in the closer executive office building, and they will get to their job doing. You need program managers, budget managers. One of the keys here is that very few people think cybersecurity is a top five priority of the Department of Agriculture or the Department of, uh, or the Small Business Administration, or, or Interior. And that, and I'll pass that on to include the PAD or the professional OMB examiner that looks at those records because she or he has the same list of priorities for that department that the secretary and the president have. And cybersecurity doesn't, if you're not in CISA or Cyber Command or NSA, cybersecurity is not a top three or top five priority. Somebody's got to say, hey, look, you cannot execute without this. We've gotten to the point after 23 years of mismanagement of IT modernization and the pairing of 10 to 12% investments of cybersecurity into all IT purchases. We just haven't done that across many federal agencies, not all, but many federal agencies for 23 years. It's going to take someone with a stick, uh, the position, the bully pulpit, the position, and the professionals to find it. And unfortunately, I think that was like 15 of our bodies are just those people because there's 102 federal departments of age or agencies. And you may want to fix that in a whole separate discussion, but I'm going to assume it stays about the same or grows slightly over the next four years. You need these people to do that. And, and it actually assists OMB. OMB wants to do the right thing. It's just impossible for them to have that kind of cyber expertise. Got it. Okay. I, I see. Uh, so the part of the idea is OMB has this responsibility sort of anyway, kind of, and it doesn't prioritize it. Maybe the function ought to move to a different White House office. That's possible. I'm a skeptic, but then where you stand it is determined by where you used to sit. And I never sat in the White House. And all I got from them was assignments and supervision and nagging. Uh, and never any execution of something that would make my life easier. So that's my prejudice. Uh, look, uh, John Costello, Mark Montgomery, the Cyberspace Solarium Commission has really made a big difference in our approach to cybersecurity policy issues. I'm glad you're around. I'm, I'm glad you'll be around until the end of uh, the year. That's probably, you don't want to be here forever, but you are making a difference and your willingness to swing through the pitch is 85% of the difference you're making. So keep it up. Thank you very much. And thanks also to David, Gus, Paul, and Mark for the news roundup. I Let's see. If you've got uh, comments uh, among the listeners, uh, please send them to CyberLawPodcast uh, at Stepto.com. Thanks to Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 358 of the CyberLaw Podcast brought to you by Stepto and Johnson. Mm-hmm.